What expectations do you have of God? What expectations do you have for God? It seems in, in my assessment, most folks, or we can be tempted or tend to go to one of two extremes with that question. On the one hand, we live in a culture where there are Christians who claim that we should expect everything from God, that He should give us everything that we desire in this world, and that if only we have enough faith, then we will have wealth and riches and friends. And then there are others who may go to the other extreme and say we should never dare expect a thing from God. We are undeserving, rightly, of anything. So why should we expect Him to do anything in our lives of great worth or great merit? Why should we expect Him to bless us in any way? So what do you expect Him to do in your life? What do you expect Him to do in the lives of others? Perhaps your friends or family sitting around you right now. What do you expect to see God to do in the world itself? What did you expect this morning when you started making your way here that He would do as we gathered together? So often we want to seem super pious and as if we don't have such questions. What should I expect God to do? But could it be, though, rightly ordered, God expects us to be expectant of Him? Could it be that most of our struggle with living expectantly of God has to do more with ourselves than it has to do with Him and His Word? This is one of the threads, this ex expectation is one of the main threads that runs throughout the life of Abraham. We've been considering him over the last couple weeks as we've been slowly working our way through Hebrews 11. You'll remember Abraham at age 75. He was called by God himself to leave his father's house, to leave his family, and to leave the very country, the very nation that he was from. Then at 100 years old, he was told by God specifically to change his wife Sarai's name to Sarah, which means princess of all things, because she was going to have a son, and thus she would become the mother of many nations. You may remember what happened when that took place. It says there in Genesis 17, 17, that Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? This is not something that Abraham was expecting of God. However, his laughter was only momentary, for when God explained that the birth would take place the following year, it says then that Abraham believed with all his heart. As Hebrews 11, 11 has made clear, by faith Abraham also, together with Sarah, received power to beget a child when he was past age, since he counted him faithful who had promised. We see there that faith overcame what Abraham expected of God. A short time later, Sarah herself, listening at the door of the tent, overheard these three mysterious guests tell Abraham that about the same time next year, they would be parents. And this old princess laughs herself. Sarah says, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? 
It says there that, that the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. But he said, God, no, you did laugh. So we find then that the great prince and princess, the father and mother of, of all who believe, themselves unexpectedly perhaps found themselves laughing at God before they were then full of profound faith. Should they have expected such things from God? Should they have expected less? Should they have expected more? Well, the beauty of all of that of all of that giving of a son and the laughter that accompanied it, is that in the end, God himself gets the last laugh. The baby boy who was born, we know, was named to be, was ne to be named Isaac, which means laughter, son of laughter. And when Isaac was born, it says there in Genesis 21.6, Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Now, commentators go back and forth whether that laughter will be in a poking fun laughter or will it will be a laughter of joy and celebration. But nonetheless, as Isaac grew, so did the continued faith of his father Abraham. It was a faith that had come to trust that God was capable to do whatever he wanted and was pleased to provide whatever he desired for his people. Abraham believed the text tells us, and it was counted to him as righteousness. But what about you? Do you have this kind of expectant faith? Now, to put it in the context of today's passage, we'll be looking at in Hebrews 11. Do you believe that the God who created the universe by his very word can bring about the unseen glories and longed-for joys of a life lived in his very presence? What of all the expectations of Hebrews itself? Maybe it would be helpful if we just do a little rewind of the book. Some of the promises that God holds out for us in this very book. There in Hebrews 2.18 it says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 4.9-11 So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his work as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. That sort of disobedience we're going to look at next week in Hebrews 11. What about Hebrews 4.16? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and that we may find grace to help in time of need. Or Hebrews 7, 25. Consequently, He, meaning Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. Since He has always, I'm sorry, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Or simply put, do you have expectations for God, the same God who rewards those who seek Him, Hebrews eleven six. 6. To ask it another way, how much 
Or how well do your expectations of God align with His very Word? This brings us back to Hebrews 11. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. Hebrews 11, we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 22 this morning. Like I said a minute ago, we spent the last two weeks considering the life of Abraham. Right, today we move on from Abraham, we finish up with Abraham, and we move on to his children, and his grandchildren, and his great-grandchildren. It really, what, what, what's covered here in this last little bit here in Hebrews 11, 17 through 22, is really the rest of the book of Genesis. I mean, it's a large portion of the book of Genesis that's covered in just a handful of verses. And it, it actually brings up, and I just want to point this out at the beginning, a difficulty of preaching this passage. So, so not all passages are, are easy to preach. Honestly, none of them are when you actually get into the text and start wrestling with it. And how are you going to deliver it to God's people? But this passage in particular presents a, a difficulty because there's a great temptation for the preacher to take these verses and to use them in a sense as a topical diving board and for us to jump back and for me to preach from Genesis. But I'm going to not do that today. I don't want to do that today because that's not what the author of Hebrews did himself. He has very specific reasons and purposes for bringing these men that he's going to talk about today up. And so what I want us to get at is why does he bring them up in Hebrews 11? Why are they here? Because as you know, the aim of the, the book of Hebrews was to encourage those who are struggling in their faith, who are being tempted to go back to the old ways, who are tempted to succumb to, to, to the pressures of their friends and their family to give up this Jesus in whom they had loved and put their hope in. And friends, I don't know about you, but we face those same kind of temptations, I do at least, in the world around us today. And so why are they here? Why is Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph presented here as examples of faith in Hebrews 11? Well, hopefully you got there. If you were using one of the Pew Bibles, maybe you got there already. But if not, it's on page 947 in our Pew Bible uh, if you want to turn there. And if you, as I say every week, if you don't have a Bible of your own, we do have some Bibles in the foyer. We would love to give you this morning as our gift to you. Uh, we would love for you to take a copy of God's Word, take it home, begin reading it, praying and asking God to open your eyes. It's our prayer even now as we open it. So let me invite you to stand once more for the reading of God's Word from Hebrews 11. I'm actually going to pick up in verse 11 and read all the way to 22, which will give us the whole picture of Hebrews 11's conversation about Abraham. Okay, hear now the word of the Lord. Actually, I'm going to pick up in verse 8, sorry. Not verse 11, verse 8. Hear now the word of the Lord from Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland." If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, 
They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And by faith Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. Well, friends, we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning in this passage focusing on verses 17 through 19 and kind of wrapping things up with Abraham here. But we will get to Isaac and Jacob and Joseph by the end. So, so hang on. We'll get there for them. But, but you do see there in your bulletin we have provided at least the, the, the points of the sermon this morning. But here they are if you're writing them down yourself. We're going to first see in, in verses 17 through 19 that it is by faith we trust. Then in verses 20 and 21 we see that it is by faith we bless. And finally in verse 22 that it is by faith we remember. And as we look at each of these, my prayer is that God would make us a people who are growing more and more in our dependence upon Him. Having faith, having expectant faith that, that as Paul says in, in Philippians 4.13, it is Him who works in us to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. That's my prayer for us today. So let's begin then by looking at how by faith we trust. By faith we trust. There in verses 17 through 19. Verse 17 begins, By faith Abraham, when he was tested. Now this is the first scene uh, that we find in Genesis 22. That, that Abraham had learned to respond to God's word. Genesis 22, 1. It's almost the most natural thing for Abraham. This is how it begins. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Right? There, there's no hesitation, at least in, in the author's part here, of, of writing about how Abraham responds to God. God says, Abraham, and Abraham says, here I am. It's the sense of being at your service, or being ready. Abraham's countenance had surely changed at God's response then. God responds to Abraham, Abraham's, here I am, by saying, Take your son, your, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So God is still leading him, we see here, and he is to go and to make Isaac a burnt offering. Now, now the first hearers of the Pentateuch, of the first five books of the Bible, would have understood what that burnt offering is. We've looked at this on Wednesday nights a few weeks ago in Leviticus. The burnt offering is the all-consuming offering. There is nothing left except ashes after the burnt offering. And so we see here that God has called Abraham to not only slay his son, to not only kill him, but to burn him as an offering to the Lord. This is gruesome. This is one of those passages that, that are very hard for people to understand, especially those who, who have, have not spent time in, in thinking about what Hebrews is holding out for us here. And so let's think about it. Let's look at it. I mean, you can think of the confusion and uncertainty even on Abraham's part. God had been so kind to him so far. He had given him so much. 
He had fulfilled at least initially this promise to give him an offspring, to give him a seed. And now God was calling him to put Isaac to death by his own hand and then to incinerate the remains as a burnt offering. The author of Hebrews here describes this rightly, though, that it's a divine testing. This word sometimes, and maybe in some of your different translations, is translated as, as a tempting. He tried him. But, but we tend to think of this word wrongly at times as being evil. We can tend to think of this word of, of testing or tempting as evil because rightly, Christians, we, we're on watch for, for temptation to sin. And so when we come to words like this, we can tend to think that God was messing with him. But what we see here, and we know from, at least from James 1.13, that God tempts no man to sin. And so this is not evil on God's part. It's not that God is tempting him to sin. In fact, God has given him a command to obey. And so Abraham's taking up and doing this and his walking in the words of God is actually him obeying the very commands of God. So this divine command then was unfortunately contrary to everything in Abraham. It went against common sense, his, his natural affections for his son, his lifelong dream, and yet we were reminded of what faith in God can look like. I don't know how many of you relate to Abraham, probably not specifically, but at least spiritually, that our faith will and must be tried. That, that like a refiner's fire, trying and testing the sorrows of this world and the hardships where we have to walk in faith it has a proving quality about it. It refines our faith. It, it grows our faith. It, it crystallizes it and makes it shine forth. So the question for us is what trials and testings are you facing even now? What do those trials and tests reveal about your heart? Do they show that, that maybe your need right now is to go to God and ask for a renewed measure of faith in Him? We see that God is both the giver of the trial and the very faith to endure through it. That God works, we see then, in our trials to reveal His power and His sustaining light. God doesn't take us through times of trial and testing so that we can show how strong we are. No, He takes us through these trials and these temptations and this testing that we face in this world. The hardships that He allows to come into our lives so that He can show just how big He is, how powerful He is. Therefore, we should not be afraid of trial. We sang this earlier. Let's see if I can find my bulletin in Jerusalem. My happy home, verse 4 says, Why should I shrink at pain and woe or feel at death dismay? I've Canaan's good land in view and realms of endless day. It's the same idea that as Christians we don't need to fear the hardships and the brokenness. Yes, they're awful. Yes, they hurt. Yes, they bring great sorrow. But we can trust the Lord. And we can only trust in Him then by faith. While we may not see the same thing as Abraham sees, it is by faith that it is commended to us. So we have to look then at the driver for Abraham up that mountain. Picking up in Genesis 22, verses 3, 4, 6, 9, and 10. There's a lot there. 
Let me just read them all so you can see it. It was by faith that we read this in Genesis 22. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw that place from afar. It's very Hebrew language, isn't it? He saw the place from afar. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar and there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. So we come back to Hebrews eleven seventeen. We are reminded again what kind of sacrifice this was. Faith is how he did this. See there that he offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises, that's Abraham. Abraham is the one who had received the promises of this covenant-making God that he was in the act of offering up his only son, his unique son. It's an interesting phrase to use, just to, just to point this out, because at this point, Isaac is not his only son. Ishmael is also his son. So what does the author of Hebrews mean when he says he's the only son? He means he's the son of promise. He is the unique son. He is the given son by God himself. The son that is only there because of God. Whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. We see in this text that there's a back and forth that goes here with this word offered and offering. You see it twice there. By faith, Abraham offered up Isaac. In the Greek, it has this sense of being a completed action, that he actually did offer him up. And yet in the very next phrase, it says what? He was in the act of offering, that it had not yet happened. The author of Hebrews does this on purpose. He gives us both of the same, the same word, but in two different senses, as if it had already happened and it was in the process of happening. Why does he go back and forth? What's he, to show, what's he trying to show here? That is, as far as God was concerned, Abraham and his faith had proven itself true. The point is, in terms of obedience to God, Abraham did it. He did what was required of him. He, he completed the test. He fulfilled what God had called him to do. He completely offered up his beloved Isaac, the laughter and joy of his life. We are reminded here that obedience is the only response to God's command. His command is most clearly seen in his word to us. If we're confused about what God commands us to do, that's where to find it. Side note. But we see here that the author of Hebrews is drawing out that, that, that Abraham fulfilled what God had called him to do. This is why God responds the way he does back in Genesis 22. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, same language, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because you have obeyed my voice. This obedience here is put in contrast or put up against the promises of God. Some of us may read this and, and feel like, like, like Hebrews creates this illogical situation. That, that, that he offered or, or he, he put forward this offering and, and did, did he expect the promises? Did he expect God to do this? Is this what he wanted? 
Is this what he thought was going to happen? Did, did Abraham know that he wasn't going to have to kill Isaac? It can feel very illogical. It can feel very disjointed. And, and again, this is why I think so many people struggle with this, with this passage. Is, is how could Abraham do such a thing? He, he has to be a crazy person to believe that, that God would have him to do this and then to go through with it? Is Abraham just this illogical man where his faith is just this blind faith and he's like some robot that just does whatever God tells him to do and there's no questioning or there's, there's no thought behind it at all? Is faith itself just this illogical mess that Christians take up of jumping off a cliff and hoping God will catch us in the end? Maybe you've thought that way. Maybe you have friends or family or co-workers who mock you in that way. Well, friends, let's look at verse 19 and see how that's not the answer at all. That Christianity is not some illogical blind jumping off a cliff and hoping God will catch us. Look back at verse 19. It says there that he, meaning Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. This word considered, it's the Greek word that we get our word logarithm from. And I'm sure all of your Math classes just came rushing back in. Logarithms, no! You know. it's, it's, this, it's this word of, of calculated. This word of, of computation. That, that he had worked it out in his mind, almost like, like, like a spiritual Rubik's Cube. He had put it together in his mind. That, that, that even if God wants me to kill my beloved only son, that God is able, somehow he will figure it out and he will raise Isaac from the dead and he will fulfill what he has promised. This was not a faith without reason, but a faith built on reckoning, not on the things that God had said, not on the things that God had done, but who God himself was. This is not a faith that just floats along blindly. And we tend to think of faith as some big audacious thing. But what should we expect from the God of life? We see it here. I mean, maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. And you wonder, what's this faith all about? What is this God that they're talking about? What, is all of this just a bunch of mumbo jumbo? Well, this here we see is, is the very call of faith itself. It is the call of faith in God, and it is a call to use your mind. It is a call to engage with Him in your thoughts, not just your heart. We want to love God. There are days where we burn with, with a zeal for God, and there are days when our hearts are cold, and we, we hate those days. We don't want to have cold hearts. But that's not all it is. There is a logic, a thought, a consideration to this God that, that it is part of our faith. Hey, some of you this morning are here and you're struggling with doubt. There are things in your life that have happened or are happening and you're like, is God here? Is He there? Is He working? What is going on? Some of us may be thinking, this is so far beyond me. How could I ever rise to such great heights of faith? Hey, I can never be like Abraham here. Abraham's faith, it was a one-of-a-kind faith. To which... My logical question is, then why is he here in Hebrews 11? That's one question, but, but a better response maybe is that we need to understand that Abraham's great faith did not begin here in the offering of Isaac. Certainly he began with faith, as all spiritual life does. Our spiritual lives begin in faith. But that started when he stepped out from Ur and began his sojourn back in Genesis 12. 
And it was, it was a great act of faith to believe God's promise that he and Sarah would be parents when they were both as good as dead. His words, not mine. But we must also remember that the downtimes of Abraham's faith. They're not brought out here, but, 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 but they're pretty tragic events. For example, the occasions on which he lied to save his own skin, saying that Sarah was his sister. Now, I don't know how many of you husbands have fallen into this temptation. I hope you haven't. But Abraham didn't fall into it just once, but twice. Or when, impatient for an heir, he and Sarah took matters into their own hands and engaged Hagar to become the mother of Ishmael. Oh yeah, we believe God's promise, but we need to help him kind of move it along. Why do I bring this up? Because friends, it, it's through the ups and downs that Abraham actually grew in his faith to this point. By all accounts, Isaac is a young man here. There have been years of God growing Abraham's faith until he became capable of this ultimate display. I'm reminded, as one theologian said, those who believe that they believe in God but without passion in their hearts, without anguish in mind, without uncertainty, without doubt, without an element of despair, even in their consolation, believe only in God the idea and not in God Himself. What does he mean? He, he means that, that, that our faith is something that must be grown in God. And, and as we are working and walking through this life, it is the great proving ground where God grows our faith. So what about you? Do you have faith in God or faith in the idea of God? Do you have faith that in testing and trial, God will show up? Are you expecting Him to? We must understand then that faith that never doubts is a dead faith because it's not actually exercised. It's not actually working. Sometimes we've got, and get, we've got to get in the gym. I know, all y'all know. We're getting in the gym, right? And we realize, well, I can't lift that. There are times in our lives where our faith has to be exercised, where it has to be grown and strengthened through the hardships. As Christians, we were sinners who have trusted in God. And then in our wrestling and our weakness, we are called to move toward a stronger and stronger belief and obedience in God's Word, just as Abraham did. And that's why he's highlighted here. Not because the author of Hebrews or, or God himself expects you to have some boisterous, exciting, lively, giant, huge faith right now. But so that your faith can be grown through the testing and the trials that we face. The life of faith is never smooth. The road to a faith that looks like this is often a bumpy ride. Faith will be tested. Inevitably, there will be times of uncertainty and doubt and even despair. But the soul that clings to God in those times will experience growth and notable triumphs in her spiritual life. Which brings us to that final phrase in these few verses a notably hard phrase to interpret. It says there at the end of verse 19, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. 
from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now, when I, I, personally, when I come to phrases like this, and all of us could do this, I, I like to go look at how, how other translations take this verse and, and how they parse it out and, and build it out and, and what is it saying there. So, so let me give you a few other translate, translations of this verse to kind of help us understand what's going on here. So, so a little bit of mind work uh, since we've been talking about our brains. The SV, which I just read, says, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. The New American Standard says, from which he also received him back as a type. The New International Version says, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. And finally, the good old King James Version says, from whence also he received him in a figure. Now, out of those four, my two personal favorites are the New American Standard and the KJV. I want to say that out front. Because the language that is used here is not just some picture, but it's actually language that's very common, commonly used in Jesus' own telling of parables. I think that's, right, that's why it's right when the New American Standard translated it as he received him back as a type. That this story, what the author of Hebrews is saying, is that the story of Abraham and Isaac is a parable. It is a, it is a picture of a greater spiritual truth. It is a type of something else that has happened. And so what is it? Well, most pointedly, it is the parable of the resurrection. It is the parable of a resurrection that our God is a God who lifts up. That our God is a God who brings life after death. That our God is a God who is strong enough to even bring about brand new eternal life. I don't think it's, it's of consequence here that, that this passage and this verse falls in the middle of Hebrews 11. Do you remember how Hebrews 11 began? That, that, that by faith we believed that God created the universe by His Word. That's how Hebrews 11 began. This idea of life, of God being the creator of all of life. And now we find here in the center of Hebrews 11 that God is also the creator of new life that He is the creator of bringing back to life. And this is the expectation. Which brings us to the final set of people mentioned in these verses. So that's the big one. That's Abraham. We're going to now move to Abraham's lineage. We pick this up in verses 20 through 21 as we see the second thing, by faith we bless. Have Abraham's generations here, these three generations that are handed down. When Abraham died, he was, was succeeded by patriarchs who were like him imperfect men, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. But they also had this same kind of expectant faith that continued through them. And when we see this with these three men, when it came to their final hour, that's what's being highlighted here, when they had neared the end of their days, they had a faith that looked beyond death. They were sure of what they hoped for and certain of what they did not see, Hebrews 11.1. 1. They were all convinced that death would not frustrate God's promise and His purpose in fulfilling what He had said He would do, specifically to their father, grandfather, great-grandfather, Abraham. Or to put it in your own context, if we have an expectant faith that trusts God, what will it bring about in us? If you expect God to work in your life, if you trust that He really is going to work, what does it bring about in your life? Two things. 
in the next three generations of Abraham. The first one here, by faith we bless. Let's see this with Isaac and then Jacob, and then I'll summarize what the author's saying about these two. So we got Isaac, we got Jacob. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Now, what's not brought up here? There's a lot that's not brought up. It's a short phrase. There's a lot that's not brought up. We don't hear about Isaac's relatively life of, of relative peace and faith. We don't hear about Isaac's marriage to his wife Rebecca and their fairly smooth marriage except for one big thing. The promise we don't hear about that God made to Rebecca that she would have twins and the older twin Esau would serve the younger twin Jacob. We don't hear about Jacob's favoritism. I'm sorry, we don't hear about Isaac's favoritism of Esau. We don't hear about Rebecca's favoritism of Jacob. We don't, aren't even told about the great break in the relationship between Jacob and Esau. And this is a key missing element here because it kind of builds the whole blessing that Isaac gives. That Esau sold his blessing, his birthright, his, his double inheritance as the firstborn son. He sold it to Jacob for a bowl of soup. We don't hear about Isaac going to get this birthright from Esau despite God's promise. We don't hear about how Rebekah conspired to dress up Jacob and present him as Esau to his blind father so that he could get the blessing. We don't even read how the blessing rightfully went to Jacob through human sin and God's divine working in it, though it damaged the relationship for many, many years. It, that's a good point of application to realize in and of itself that God works in and through fallen people and weak people, that He is that wise, that He is that able, that He desired that the blessing would go to Jacob. And He was able to accomplish it even in Jacob and Rebekah's sinful conniving. But all of that is missing here, isn't it? What do we have then? By faith, says the preacher, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. What is he speaking about? Well, he's talking about Genesis 27. It's where we find Isaac blessing a disguised Jacob. This is what it says. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. You got to remember Isaac's blind. He can't see. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garment. He thought it was Esau. And he blessed him. And he said, See, the smell of my son is the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Then once the ruse is up and the disguises come off and we figure out who is who here, after much weeping, when all is found out, Isaac finally blesses Esau, if you want to call it a blessing. He at least speaks of what's going to happen with Esau. In Genesis 27, verse 39, it says, Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away, so, so notice the opposite of what he said to Jacob, Away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword shall you live, and you shall serve your brother. And when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now that is the blessing of Isaac upon his sons. Now let's zoom in a little bit further on Jacob. The author of Hebrews goes on to say, By faith Jacob, when dying, 
blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. You know, what's here? Well, again, let's consider what's missing, because I think it's helpful. There's no tale of how Jacob came by his 12 sons through Rachel and Leah and their servants, whom Jacob also took as wives. The author of Hebrews doesn't deal with Joseph's beautiful technicolor dream coat and how that reflects his favor upon him. There's no mention of the family turmoil of Joseph being sold into slavery. There's no mention of the famine and Jacob eventually bringing his family to Egypt. There's no mention of his other sons and, and their children. Not even Judah is mentioned here, who is the rotten brother by whom God would bring the seed of Jesus Christ himself. The author of Hebrews leaves all of that out. So what do we get? That Jacob blesses not only his own sons, but his grandsons. Specifically the sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. Genesis 48. When Joseph saw that his father laid his hand, right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand, this is Jacob, I'm sorry, it's Joseph taking Jacob's hand, his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be the greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God makes you as Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. So again, just like what Jacob and Esau, where the younger is served by the older, Jacob then confers on his grandsons the same reality that the older will serve the younger. What do we have here? That we have that because Jacob loved Joseph the most, and since he was the firstborn of his true love, Rachel, that Jacob blesses both of his grandsons. Just a quick mention here, and if you want to talk to me more about this after the service, we can. But I brought it up this past Wednesday night. We, we considered why in the end are there 13 tribes of Israel in the camps, right? With Levi in the middle and all the other camps. Well, here they are. Ephraim and Manasseh. Joseph's tribe splits up into two. Why? Because Jacob, Israel, blesses both of them. So we have 13 tribes then, as it were. The older Manasseh was placed by his right hand, in order to receive the greater blessing, and the younger to his left. But Jacob, responding to God, crosses his hands. So we have two blessings here. What do, they, what do they mean? What does the blessing of Isaac and the blessing of Jacob have to do with faith? What does the author, why does the author of Hebrews bring this up? Again, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't focus on the sons or the grandsons. At least here, it isn't by faith that their sons received. It doesn't say, by faith... Manasseh received the blessing. It doesn't say that. This isn't some prosperity gospel, that, it, that if they had believed, if they had had enough faith, they would have received all the blessings. He also doesn't focus on the blessings themselves. He doesn't speak of what happens or why it happens. He doesn't say that faith, by faith, we are blessed. Notice what he says. The focus here is on the act of blessing, particularly blessing at death in light of the future. It is a further playing out of this truth of Hebrews eleven thirteen that that all of these, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 
they died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So what's the truth held out for us here then? If we expectantly trust in God, walking by faith, how does it express itself? Here is the first way. That like Isaac and Jacob, when we have grace-produced faith that expects God to work and move in our lives, we can keep a blessed resolve that draws, draws the focus of our lives and the lives of those around us to look ahead. And when we are this way, when, when faith produces this in us, then we too are able to bless. We are able to be a great encouragement, a great building up, a sweet aroma to the people in our lives. How does this work itself out? Well, think of our parenting. Do we bless Godwardly our children? Do we point them heavenward in our parenting of them? Think about our work. How with your co-workers do you bless them with the gospel? Think about the conflicts that we face in our lives all over the place. Do we seek to glorify God at the end of the day? How else are we supposed to fulfill God, Jesus' command in Luke 6, 28? Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who are abusive to you. Which brings us to the final one. We'll stop here. In verse 22, by faith we remember. This final person here focused on our passage today is that of Joseph. And it begs the question. Here's the question as we come to this final one. Is how can we be people who trust God and seek to be a blessing to others by casting their eyes toward the unseen hope of Jesus Christ? We see here that the answer is it actually comes by remembering what God has already done. The last patriarch, as I said, as mentioned, is Joseph. And so he was sure that nothing would annul God's promise that Israel would one day possess this land. Look at how he says it here. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. What does the author tell us in this short verse? And I just want to close by focusing here. First, that at the end of his life, Joseph made mention of the Exodus. By faith, he made that mention. And he made mention of it on purpose because he had directions in light of it. Now, this phrase, made mention, doesn't mean to talk about the future, like he's some kind of psychic that he knows what's going to happen, and he just picks something. No, made mention actually here means to remember or to recall or to bring to mind which is a remarkable thing to consider because uh, Joseph had left Canaan when he was 17 years old. He had lived in Egypt until his death at the age of 110. And during all of that time, there was no mention of an exodus of the Israelites of any kind, of any sort. So what is he remembering? What is he recalling here? Let me read this to you, Genesis 15. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, 
you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Do you hear what's here? That God had made a promise to Abraham, even before his name was changed to Abraham. He's still Abram at this point. This is a long time ago. That God had made a promise to Abram hundreds of years before Joseph's time. This truth had no doubt been handed down generation after generation. And what's more, God would go on to tell them to keep on sharing it. Exodus 12. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as He has promised, you shall keep this service, the Passover. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is a sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for He passed over the house of the people of Israel in Egypt when He struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. So we see here the fulfillment of His faith's move that Joseph speaks of what was promised not just to him, but to his great-grandfather, to his grandfather, and to his father. We see that it happens. And then in Exodus 13, 19, we read that Moses himself carried Joseph's bones out of Egypt in all their mummified form into the promised land. But Moses didn't go, did he? And so then we read in Joshua 24 that it's Joshua himself at Shechem who buries the bones of Joseph. Friends, what does all of this talk of things unseen, of death and future promises and moving forward mean to us? Well, let's consider them all together. Four generations. Four generations of men of faith, Israel's patriarchs, our fathers by faith. They all illustrate the same thing. It's faith that is forward-looking and characterized by trusting in this living and moving God who drew them into His gracious covenant. They all show what it is to expect God to move. They teach us what it means to expect from God, to live expectantly, to move in displaying His glory through life and even after death, to move in bringing about the blessing of His people, not materially, but heavenly, so that we can bless, to move in fulfilling every last one of His promises through, as 2 Corinthians tells us, Jesus Christ Himself. Friends, you know as well as I do that our faith often fluctuates. But our God, He does not. The record of these men of Genesis is that their faith fluctuated as well. Yet their experience, as our experience in God's faithfulness and power, bears witness from these pages to us. It's meant to fortify our fragile faith. Just consider how they trusted and followed the Lord who began with an elderly, childless couple and created countless multitudes of descendants who could confer on the offspring of tent-dwelling nomads the possession of a bountiful homeland who could raise the dead who could lift the eyes of their hearts beyond the span of earthly sojourn to greet from afar blessings that were coming in a distant heavenly future in a better country. And so the reality for us then 
We who live in Jesus Christ, who have repented of our sins and put our faith in Him and walk in His new covenant, we have seen God keep His greatest promises at the greatest cost to Himself. Do you realize that? That He has kept His greatest promises to us at the greatest cost to Himself. It's Abraham who trusted in God's life-moving power when he prepared to perform such a heart-wrenching task as sacrificing his own son. But in the end, Isaac was spared, replaced by a substitute that foreshadowed God's ultimate gift of faithful love. As Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all thanks? What a verse to believe about an expectant God. So as we close this morning, know this. When testing, trials, sorrows, and even death confront us as they did Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, our trembling hearts, our doubting minds must be calmed by God's question to Sarah. Is there anything that the Lord cannot as Paul prayed in Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Will you pray with me? God, we do desire that you would do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, according to your spirit at work in us. God, may you be glorified in this moment, in this place. May Christ have the church for which he died. May we see that you, Lord, who did not spare your own son, you will give us everything that we need. God, if there are those here this morning who are struggling in their faith, would you strengthen it by yourself? And God, if there are those this morning who have not faith in you, would you give them that great gift that they may turn from hope and trust in anything else and turn to the only one who can keep, who will preserve us until the very end. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.